Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Picture this. It's the middle of a brutal war, and deep behind enemy lines, there's a woman working among the wounded soldiers, officers captured during the conflict. These officers have been brought to this occupied city in need of food, water, and medical attention, thrown into a prison camp, and she and her daughter slip between the ranks, bringing them much needed relief. Some of them, the ones who are able, will try under cover of night to make a break for it, escaping back to friendly territory. And some of them will stay at this woman's house as she equips them and speeds them on their way. When the liberating army arrives, she and her daughter will flee north themselves to safety. And later, after the war is over, some of those officers will even write on her behalf, testifying to her good deeds, deeds that we only learn about years after the fact. Yet not all the stories match up. There are conflicts, inconsistencies, even some downright lies. To this day, questions linger. What is she? Who was she? Does anyone really know? This isn't fiction. This isn't John le Carré. This is the story of Amelia Feaster and her daughter, Marie Boozer, two of the most celebrated, mysterious, and compelling women of the entire Civil War. And joining us today on Crime Capsule is Tom Elmore, historian and author of The Scandalous Lives of Carolina Bells, Marie Boozer, and Amelia Feaster, Flirting with the Enemy, published by the History Press. Tom's book is the first truly comprehensive account of their lives and the legends associated with them. And he is here to set the record straight. Tom, welcome to Crime Capsule. We are so delighted to have you. Thank you for asking me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You are based in uh, South Carolina, and you are a Civil War historian by trade, aren't you? I defended myself more of a 19th century historian than um, just Civil War. I'm not one trick pony. I just can't win a new book called Celtic Columbia, which is a history of the Irish and the Scots and the Scotch-Irish from the colonial era up till today here in the greater Columbia, South Carolina area. And I've written numerous articles and pieces about different parts of Columbia history. But more or less, I have been known for my work on the Civil War. Do you have Scotch-Irish ancestry yourself from that area? I am both. I am. Um, my great-great-great-grandfather came to America from Dublin in the 1790s as a uh, 14-year-old orphan. And he was also of Scotch ancestry as well. So when people say Scotch Irish, I say, yes, I am both Scotch and I'm an Irish. On the Scottish side, I'm a member of Clan Davidson. And on the Irish side, I'm currently the state historian for the ancient Ori of Hibernians. Well, that's a pretty impressive uh, responsibility there. Does that require you to know all of the good Irish drinking songs? Um, the only way I can sing on key is if I'm standing on one. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, we are so grateful for you to come and, and join us and tell us a little bit about some of these enigmatic uh, ladies who were active in Colombia in the mid-1800s. Um, but before we get to Amelia and Marie, this is not your first book with the History Press, is it? No, I've had this. I've got it was my second. I've had three altogether. Um, this one, the proper title is The Scandalous Lives of the Carolina Bells, Marie Boozer and Amelia Feaster. If I had to do it all over again, I would call it Fifty Shades of Blue and Gray. My first book was Columbia Civil War Landmarks, which is sort of a self-explaining t- title. And then the third one, uh, Potter's Raid, 
which is about the last military action in South Carolina during the Civil War. Um, the raid is noteworthy because the last Union officer killed in battle uh, died during the raid, and the 54th Massachusetts, uh, which you know, was featured in the movie Glory, participated in this raid. And it was the first book ever, narrative account ever written about the raid, oddly enough. I also get another book that's done by the Joggling Poor Press called A Carnival Destruction, um, Sherman's Invasion of South Carolina. The title comes from an actual quote by a Union officer. Um, and it's, you know, my answer to War and Peace, you know, you know 600 pages, t- t- you know, 200,000 words, 2,000 footnotes. 600 items in the bibliography. And in that, and was working on that, that I got discovered and got interested in, in Maria Amelia. I was going to ask you because you, you write in this volume that you started collecting these snippets, that you were kind of coming across pieces of their trail in different sources, different articles, sometimes conflicting, sometimes corresponding, and that you just kind of squirreled them away for a long time. Is that right? Yes and no. Um, I uh, wrote a little magazine piece about Maria in 1996. Uh, I'm dating myself by saying that. Um, that was my first magazine sale. Um, so Marie's a special girl for me. Um, and I just kept, every time I find a different little thing about her in some of the other research, I just added to it because I gave some, I would give a few talks here and there about Marie. Um, and then finally, you know, I had a couple, after I finished with Carnival, which came out um, 11 years ago, people said to me, you need to um, write a book about Marie. I had several people do it. So I said, okay, well, let me see what I've got. And I was able to whip out the whole thing in six months, the fastest ever turnaround ever. You know, I had so much information already, and I found some more information along the way as well. That's a really impressive turnaround time. Anyone who does historical research knows that these things are typically very uh, meticulous and methodical and, you know, testing things and re-researching. That's, that's something, Tom. Well, you got to remember, too, I mean, that would have been 2013, I believe it was. You know, I've been collecting stuff about Marie at that point for almost two decades by that point. So it really wasn't that much additional research required. It was just, you know, trying to fill in a few little gaps. And be honest with you, anytime you try to research anything about South Carolina in the 19th century, uh, you're always going to have some holes in the story that is like a Greyhound bus size because so many records were lost or destroyed during the war. And Marie's story was no different. And then with, also with Marie, I have another issue is that there's so many legends, myths, and tales about her that I had to be like the Mythbusters, you know. What can we say is is true? What can we say is plausible? What can we say is busted? Yeah, and that's what I wanted to to jump into, really, was because you, in your fifth chapter in the book, the last chapter of the book, you have a long discussion, a very detailed discussion of all of the subsequent accounts by other historians, both professional and amateur, uh, who tried to gather the threads of Amelia and Marie's lives. And uh, we're not going to give anything away to our listeners. We're not spoiling you know, the story or anything like that. But I did want to ask you right up front, 
this historiography is incredibly dense and complicated and contradictory at most turns. <laughs> um, and as you say, you had to do some some myth busting. How how difficult of a process was that when nearly everything that has been written about them, particularly Marie and the end of her life, is just almost wrong in some form or fashion. There's just nobody that has it exactly right. Well, part of it, you also got to look at the intent. Um, most people who wrote about her um, did it out, either out of greed, you know, I mean, yellow jur- journalism is not new. I mean, th- there were magazines and newspapers, you know, 150 years ago that rivaled the National Enquirer today. It's like I tell people, and I mean, Marie was basically a tabloid queen by that century standard. And then you had a couple of people who wrote stuff just because they wanted to get back at her. They had personal grudges against her. And then you had the two romance novels in the 1950s, um, and one of which was originally intended to be a factual biography, but the author did not have enough material to do that. She tried again 20 years later, Elizabeth Bobright Coker, LaBelle was the name of the book, um, tried again 20 years later to do a factual account, but for some reason never finished that project. Though I did see her notes, and she has some really good information in them. Yeah, and here, here you are trying to sort of sift through uh, that material to find what is workable and then what is clearly drawn from, say, secondary, tertiary, or just plain apocryphal sources, aren't you? Exactly. I mean, and some of the stories are actually quite, and some of the stories have really been taken as fact for years. Um, one of them involves her and Sherman's chief of Calvary, um, Justin Kilpatrick, who was also one of the worst or best, depending on your perspective, womanizers in the entire Union Army. Um, there were stories that have been printed as fact by serious historians. You know, Kilpatrick is full of good stories. I mean, there's one story. I love that um, after a, he and Custer were rivals, um, both on the field and in the sack, if you know what I mean. And um, after a failed raid, he came back and found out that his mistress, who he had stolen from Custer, had gone back to Custer because he was a bear, she, he was a bear lover. So Kilpatrick had the woman arrested as a spy. Well, General George Meade, who was Kilpatrick's commanding officer, investigated the matter and I've just recently found a letter he wrote saying the woman claims that she went back to Kilpatrick to Custer because he's bigger. I've seen the two of them, Kilpatrick and Custer, back together, and they both look to be the same size. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave our listeners to draw their own conclusions from that <laughs> that uh, that account. Uh, this is a family radio show. So <laughs> and there's another great story about Kilpatrick is that he was U.S. ambassador to Chile. And on the way to Chile, he taking a boat, he met a young couple, an uh, army officer, I believe, and his young wife, they just got married, and the officer, he parked at Panama, and his wife was going on to Chile, and the officer asked Kilpatrick to look after her. And boy, did he. Uh, they passed themselves off as husband and wife till they got to Chile, where she left Kilpatrick and became a courtesan. Ooh. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> that's not well. Not uncommon for folks to have to travel in disguise like that, though. That was uh, much more common in in those days than it is today. But that is something. Well, let me ask you. Your book 
is about these two very enigmatic, mysterious, and complicated women, uh, mother and daughter, um, Amelia Feaster, Marie Boozer, who also were possessed of, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get this real wrong, Tom. You're gonna have to forgive me. They were both possessed of about six or seven full names by the end of their lives <laughs> with as many sort of marriages and divorces and, and remarriages and new marriages and husbands dying and so forth. Uh, could Is it possible to get a complete list of Amelia's, all of Amelia's names and all of Marie's names just right up front here? Can we do that? Or is that, does that take too long? <laughs> that would probably take too long. Our maiden name, Amelia's maiden name was C's, S-E-E-S. Um, she was born in Philly in 1819. Uh, at age, she was um, a French Huguenot descent, by the way. She married her first husband, uh, whose first name was either Henry or Thomas. The last name was Harnett. So we got Amelia C.'s Harnett there. He died the day after the wedding. Then in 1841, she married Peter Burton of Columbia and moved to South Carolina. And he was the biological father of Marie. Um, she was born Marie Adele Peter Burton, and he died in 1847, shortly after she was born, allegedly murdered. And then you finally have Amelia's third husband, David Boozer, so that's good. we're going with, that would be Amelia C's uh, Harnett Burton Boozer Feaster. <laughs> be her entire name if you want to go all that and her thank you yeah anyway her husband number three big day was a widower and he blew up the, the left side of his head with a double barrel shotgun um apparently it was not a happy marriage um and Maria was actually suspected of killing her husband um she actually went to court to Challenged his will, which said he wanted fifty, a specific grave and fifteen hundred dollars for it. And you know the old saying: you, you she arrived in a taxi and left in a limo. That was Amelia. Uh, yeah, because um, because she took her husband's estate, which is pretty uh, substantial, and went back to Columbia and went on a big shopping spree. And was also accused of having an affair with a prominent physician here in Columbia at the time. And so finally, she was expelled from the congregation of the local church for dressing unbecoming a widow and her alleged affair and conduct in general. And the doctor was forced to move to California. Now, it's interesting, you know, Tom, as I read about Amelia, uh, both mother and daughter have these kind of two defining characteristics. Um, you know, Amelia struck me as what some people would call opportunistic, but I actually thought of it as she's just very shrewd. You know, she's always alert to um, kind of ways to get what she wants and to um, increase her standing, you know, which is which is hard for a, a woman who is um, in some cases independent in the mid 1800s, right? I mean, that's part of the social context at the time. Well, I, I think the term I would use was, was social climber. That's pretty much what everyone said, that she was basically trying to work her way up society's ladder by hook or by crook. 
So that's that's how I see her as a social climber. Okay. All right. Um, so if that's the case, and that kind of steers her trajectory over the course of your account, um, her daughter has another aspect to her, which is incredibly compelling to others around her, which is her looks, her beauty. And both um, both Amelia and Marie used their kind of uh, gifts, shall we say, to their advantage, didn't they? Well, I would say Amelia used Marie's gifts more so than Marie did. I actually kind of feel sympathy. I have sympathy for Marie. I think she was used. I, I look at her more as being used and maybe in some way psychologically abused by her mother. Uh, her mother took a, you know, was looking at her as a way to, you know, my daughter, ooh, my daughter can move, marry into a really good family and, you know, elevate me. I mean, she was supposedly engaged to a member of the Preston family of South Carolina, which was one of the most prominent families in the state at the time. And her fiancé, alleged fiancé, died at the Battle of Atlanta in 1864. Um, but, and, but she, she, you know, as far as her intelligence goes, um, she could speak French. So I get the impression she was probably book smart. But in terms of, shall we say, street marks for different, for like a better term, I don't think she really had those. I think she was, in some ways, a a babe in the woods. So undoubtedly, I, she probably knew her looks could give places. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting that she she sort of does this promenading of uh, the university grounds. She goes out in a carriage. You know, she's sort of. Um, makes makes it a point to be very uh, visible and of course has many different suitors over the course of her youth uh, but what one thing that really struck me about Amelia and Marie and I wanted to ask you this is that they they were very rare in Columbia South Carolina for being union sympathizers now where did their loyalties come from okay well Marie actually was viewed as a good Confederate rebel um, prior to the death of her fiancé. Uh, Amelia, well, she was born in Philadelphia. She was from the North. So, I mean, so she made no secret of her pro-Union sympathies. I mean, that was just who she was, where she came from. Marie volunteered at the way, said to volunteer at the Wayside Hospital, so she did some work, but if there was a change in Marie's attitude towards the cause, it probably happened when her fiancé was killed. Because that's when you start really, people start looking at her differently. But but with Amelia, I mean, it's just, she was a Yankee. Now, let me ask you, I mean, South Carolina, of course, famously was the first state to secede from the Union. And uh, Fort Sumter, of course, we all are very aware of what happened there. But how many Union sympathizers were in South Carolina at this time? I mean, the number had to be extremely low. Um, I have I really came across a lot of Union sympathizers. Um, there was the first post-war governor of South Carolina was not a secessionist, but he was not necessarily pro-Union either. Um, so, yeah, they were few and far between. There were a couple. There was another one in Columbia who lived about a block from Amelia who was a carriage maker who was later tarred and feathered and chased out of town. Um, but, yeah, they were few and far between. 
What's interesting as well about the situation in Colombia is that despite, of course, being the site of the outbreak of active hostilities, uh, the war does not actually reach cent- uh, sort of central South Carolina, inter- the interior of the state such as Colombia until well into the conflict. So you write that Sherman um, doesn't even get near South Carolina until uh, about 18, late 1864, early 1865. Is that right? 1865. In fact, um, this this week would be the anniversary of him entering South Carolina. Auspicious timing right. <laughs> on our part. Um, there, No one really thought about going into, everybody wanted Charleston. I mean, the feeling was that if you captured Charleston, um, you know, you would be, you have it made militarily. You could run for president, all that kind of stuff. So, and of course, it was probably the most hated city in the Confederacy after um, Richmond. I told somebody, I said, if you want to know how North felt about South Carolina, imagine how you felt the day after 9 11 and multiply that by 100. That's how much anger. So, yeah, no one really ever thought about invading. Sherman was the first one to do that. And, you know, live off the land and stuff because of course you know you know prior to sherman you know armies were pretty much hitched you know tied at the to their um, supply depots you know almost like an umbilical cord and sherman changed that um but at the time that sherman came to columbia um columbia in his mind was the most important city in the confederacy and there was reasons for that you had the railroads that connected charleston and augusta went through columbia and augusta was he home of the Confederate Power Mill, which supplies Lee's army. And the trains from Columbia went on to Virginia to supply Lee, and Columbia was a little bit of a manufacturing center. I mean, just about anything a good Confederate soldier needed, like uniforms, munitions, weapons, even the money was printed here in Columbia. Yeah, after the war, Sherman said another factor in his decision was the fact that by taking out Columbia, he took out Augusta and Charleston without having a fire shot because, you know, the railroads were their value to the Lee's army was taken away because the railroads were destroyed. You know, it's an interesting point that you raise, Tom, because one of the things that we forget is how regional the conflict was uh, throughout um, the history of the Civil War. There was never just one battle in isolation. It was always a series of triangulations around supply lines and depots and and so forth. And Columbia experienced that. You write very interestingly that Columbia experienced that in the arrival of prisoners to the area, that there was a massive prison camp for captured Union officers. When did that get set up? Okay, this is kind of a complicated story. Um the camp was unofficially known as Camp Sorghum because sorghum molasses was their main staple of food. Uh, it came about because of Sherman's march through Georgia. Uh, they were worried about you know Sherman freeing the prisoners, and so they start sending prisoners to Charleston. Well, the people in Charleston, they didn't want them. They didn't have any room for them. And there was also a yellow fever outbreak. So... Without warning, prior notification or authorization, they just, the people in Charleston just sent them to Columbia. And so Columbia officials had to scramble to find a place to put them, and they found the spot in what is now West Columbia, uh, where the Broad and the 
So Little River joined to form the Congaree River. On that site was chosen for two reasons. One, there would be plenty of water. And two, they felt the rivers would actually help deter escapes. Um, actually, it did not work out that way because all they had to do was follow the Slough River into North Carolina where there were Unionists in the mountains who would take them across the Smokies into Tennessee into the Union lines. About a third of all the prisoners wound up escaping. Uh, but there were about thirteen to 1,400 um, POWs. All of them were federal officers. The guards were the proverbial old men and young boys. Um, there was no permanent um, structures there. The men slept in literally in ditches in the ground called shabang. A shabang was about eight feet long and four feet wide, and two men would sleep in. They would cover it up with whatever they could find. So not a very nice place. Mercifully, it only lasted about two or three months. But... The remains of it were still here when Sherman came to Columbia, and a lot of people said, and a couple of Union soldiers actually wrote, and I was first, probably the first person to point this out, that they blamed Camp Sorghum for the burning of Columbia. Union soldiers actually did. So you write that Marie and Amelia, so Amelia being uh, a Yankee <laughs> by birth, and Amelia, excuse me, Marie having her attitudes towards the war change after the loss of someone she cared about very deeply, they they start getting involved. And, you know, in our series on sort of spies and espionage in American history, this is where, this is one of the areas in which Marie and Amelia gain a little bit of notoriety during the war because they were known union sympathizers. There was a large camp of federal officers, uh, you know, almost in their backyard. And, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna have to phrase this in a in a kind of curious way, um, Tom. So so forgive me. We we don't know that they were spies, but we also don't know that they weren't right because the, there was an outreach towards the Union officers. They did shelter prisoners in their home, escapees, and so forth. And is it too much to say? I mean. Can we assume that as they are doing this kind of uh, under the cover of night kind of work, I mean, information is being shared. There are discussions of supply lines and, you know, where are troop postings and fortifications and so forth. They are part of an informal intelligence network. I don't think they actually were spies themselves. I incline to believe they were more like facilitators or abettors. You know, they would provide, in the sense, they provide shelter or cover or whatever. Um, there were several spies in Colombia, um, we know for a fact. Uh, I came across one story about this one Union soldier, who with, with Sherman, a scout for Sherman, who came to Colombia disguised as a Confederate, um, stayed with a woman for several days, and when the Union Army came to Colombia, he sought out the woman who had befriended him to save her from harm, and he showed up at her house in a Union uniform, and she dropped down the spot from a heart attack. Oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, I think basic. I don't know if Marie really provided, could have, or Amelia. I was saying, but Amelia would have probably done more than Marie would have, is my belief. And uh, Amelia, I think, I don't think she would have had, because she was distrusted, I don't think she would have had a lot access to information. So I think what she probably just did is hid spies in her house or 
told them, oh, go here or go there, you know, that kind of little stuff. So what what were their activities in the camps? You write that there was some uh, nursing that they were involved in, bringing food and medicine. I was really struck uh, by the fact that they, in some cases, had to bribe the guards to get access. And I thought, well, that uh, that's a pretty neat trick. <laughs> you know, uh, Well done. Well done, Amelia. Yeah. And it's actually in the official records of the War Rebellion. Amelia's name is mentioned uh, where a soldier um, at Camp Sorghum was given a pass to go into town to visit her. So we'll come back to those records momentarily because they are a key piece of the the puzzle here. Um, they really provide this interesting dimension to what we know um, about their activities. But um, how much contemporary correspondence or uh, evidence at the time do we have of what uh, these two ladies were up to? Well, that piece of correspondence, that record is contemporary. It was written while Sorghum was active. Um, but most of everything you find written about Marie and, and Amelia is post-war. I did find one thing, um, a diary that's uh, one of uh, Marie's cousins wrote um, in the early 1860s, talking about their visit to Columbia and describing 1861, they had a very lovely, 60 or 61, they had a very lovely time, but the next year it was hardly talked about it. So that's pretty much all except, you know, a couple of church records here and there um, that predate the war, a few things like that, but I would say at least 80%, if not more, is all post-war. Do you have any sense of how many of these officers they were able to minister to directly? Is there any kind of tally or, you know, sort of ballpark estimate? I want to say I read something like about a dozen or so were helped by her. Um, some of them, like I said, was not a very secure camp. And then in December of 64, they moved the prisoners to the grounds of the South Carolina State Mill Hospital. Um, and the new camp was called Camp Asylum. It was also nicknamed Camp Lunacy. And it was a little bit more secure. Um, but the <clears throat> but when Sherman came to there were still prisoners who had escaped um, that were in the Greater Columbia area. And undoubtedly, she helped with some of them. Right. You mentioned that there, in some cases, they would provide maps. Is that right? To the to the escapees, sort of saying, you know, here's here's either a sort of sense of the contour of the land, or follow this river, and you know that sort of thing. That's helpful. I mean, like I said, it would really been easy. You know, the Slough River was not dammed at that time, so it would have been a straight shot just following the Slough River into North Carolina, which goes into what was Union's country at the time. So trying to find a way to escape would it's not that difficult, really, once you get out of the camp. And you did not have the best quality guards in the world either. You don't have the best quality guards. You know, the the advent of electric lighting is still, of course, years you know away. The cover of night is still very powerful. Um, you know, the conditions were, were fairly ripe <laughs> for what they call uh, permeable borders, uh, shall we say. Right. Yeah, there was not a stock K. There was like, you know, deadlines, you know, posted around the camp, you know, cross here, we're going to shoot you. And you see about two, some of these boys are in their teens. I mean, you know, I mean, the idea of telling them to shoot a man is probably something, 
they probably didn't have the nerve to do. And so the old men probably could not have hit them. Right. <laughs> yeah, maybe your eyesight isn't as good as it used to be, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, let me ask you this. Do we have much uh, of the material culture left over from Camp Sorghum or Camp Lunacy? I mean, are folks digging things up and, uh, you know, from the ground during construction in different areas uh, from the old perimeter of the camp? I ha- There's never been any archaeology done in the campus, uh, of Camp Sorghum, um, to the best of my knowledge. I know some metal t- people, metal detectors, have relic hunters have gone over part of the site and found a few little items here and there. Of course, keep in mind the unit aren't, but keep in mind these soldiers were picked clean when they came to Columbia. So there would not have been much there to begin with. Um, and also the unit army marched, the 15th Corps marched through the site. So, you know, what you find there might not have been from a prisoner, but from the 15th Corps. Now, Camp Asylum is a different story. They have done archaeology there, and they did find some sites, and they were able to put together a diorama of what the area looked like. It was slightly better than sorghum, but still not that great. Yeah, you mentioned that one of the key features of the second camp was this very large brick wall, which is still in place today. I mean, a single person could not have scaled it, but if um, if they'd had help from maybe one or two others to get a boost, it looks like you might have been able to get over the top. Right. Okay. So I don't think there was any barbed wire. Well, barbed wire wasn't around back then, but I don't think there was anything that could have stopped them if they had climbed over the top, except, you know, guards maybe on the other side of the wall, which would have made sense, but I don't know if they ever did that. I said the information we have, the first information we have on these two camps is very, very scant. I mean, it's, in fact, there's not even a historic marker for Camp Sorkin. I've been screaming for years for one. So we only have a few records. Most of what we know comes from one person, um, Samuel Byers, who was a lieutenant from Iowa, um, who wrote this poem, Sherman's March to the Sea, and later wrote about 30 different books and magazine articles, about three of which dealt with sorghum and asylum. And he also wrote the official Iowa State Song, whose name is the official Iowa State Song. He was later U.S. ambassador to Switzerland. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the officers were uh, given appointments like that, which um, you know is fascinating. Sort of second second act to to their lives. Now Sherman is really the dividing line in Amelia and Marie's life. When Sherman arrives uh, with his army in February of eighteen sixty five. Marie and Amelia have been under suspicion by their neighbors. There is um, all sort of sort of talk about them and their activities, which has not led to violence against them, but they are definitely um, sort of social, more socially outcast than they ever had been prior to the outbreak of the war. Well, their gender probably saved them from physical harm, um, to be blunt. Um, but Amelia and her husband were separate at this point. Um, not divorced, but separated. And she, of course, left with Sherman. And um, Sherman makes a brief mention of her in his memoirs, in fact. But um, they traveled to Fayetteville, North Carolina, where they board a steamer, you know, f- up to Philadelphia, presumably um, for Amelia to see family members and 
I guess it didn't go well because they stayed in Philly for a short period of time, then moved on to New York City. Yeah. Now, how was it that Amelia was able to secure passage with Sherman's army? Uh, there were about 200 people, uh, white people, who accompanied Sherman, who left with Sherman um, when the, you know, after the fire. I mean, Amelia's house was burnt, and Amelia supposedly, you know, you know, made herself known to Sherman. So that's how, but, and also they had sat literally thousands of escaping slaves following his army as well, too. That's a totally different story, but that's how they were able to do it. You know, she was a unionist, and, and there were one story that said that she was the only true Yankee Sherman claimed to have met in South Carolina. That's, that's quite an appellation right there. My goodness, that's, uh, that's some strong words. And somehow she found herself in the uh, most posh, most, one of the most luxurious um, motels in New York City, the Astor House, where Abraham Lincoln had once slept. Now, let me ask you this. When she arrives there, she appeals to Congress for uh, recompense for all of the losses that she incurred uh, at the moment at which... Um, you know, her home was burned and, um, you know, she lost everything she had. And this is not uncommon, of course, in those uh, in those days. There were kind of mechanisms, you know, for someone to appeal to the federal government for for restitution. And services rendered, too. Yes, of course. There was also some it, too, for, yeah, for helping, you know, prisoners escape and helping spies. And there was a bill introduced in the U.S. Senate introduced by the general's own brother, John Sherman, um, to give her $10,000, which quite a sum of money in those days, still quite a sum. I wouldn't mind Congress giving me $10,000 personally. Um, <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah. And it passed the Senate yeah. unanimously, but it went to the House of Representatives and it was tabled. And since motions to table are not debatable, we don't know why it was tabled. But as I said in the book, there were several other um, similar bills that were tabled that same day, so it might have just been the mood of the house, like, okay, we're tired of giving out money for this and that for all these people claiming this. So. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because there's something curious that happens as as this this motion as, as her sort of petition is working its way through the halls of Congress. Um, she she both. Uh, sort of deposes herself in, in the sense that she has to provide kind of a testimony of her own activities. And then she also begins to collect the uh, sort of letters of support, um, letters of like affidavits kind of from some of the uh, captured union officers that had, that she had assisted. Right. And, and what's interesting historiographically about these is that, as you say, so much of our evidence comes after the fact. This is where we learn what she was actually up to during the war. And yet, Tom, what I want to ask you is there are some tensions between what uh, these other folks are saying about her and her station and her activities and what she herself is saying. So uh, she passes herself off as a widow when she was not, in fact, a widow, right? And and there seems to be a... Uh, I was trying to find a way to kind of characterize this because she is spinning a story whose threads of actual truth are very difficult to find. Keep in mind, too, any accounts you're going to read from South Carolina are going to be clouded by um, 
you know, bias, whatever. Actually, you were talking about this, you remind me of something. There is one other contemporary account. Um, Mary Chestnut wrote about them in her famous diary. And uh, you can find the full thing in the 1980s version, uh, Mary Chestnut's Civil War. Um, you can find references to Amelia and uh, Marie. Interesting. Okay, another another source for you. Yeah, absolutely. For our for our listeners who want to chase this sort of thing up, but how did you, as a historian, how did you reconcile these tensions that are now in the public record? Right. I mean, these sort of appeals to Congress. There. I mean, how did how did you make sense out of what she? Uh, claimed to be true, what was later found out to be not true, what folks about her were saying about her at the time. How did you sift through all this and kind of arrive at your... Part of it came from doing, you know, Carnival Destruction took me 15 years of research. Um, if I, if the internet um, resources were available when I started, uh, I probably would have cut at least half of that time, if not more. Um, just because I was limited to going down to, couldn't go online and Look at everything. I had to go down to the USC library, which was open only from eight thirty to four Monday through Friday. So that you know, I had to work too, so I couldn't do as much as I wanted to at the time. But um, so anyway, but so I had that background knowledge already about Columbia and South Carolina in that time period. Uh, and people's attitudes and stuff, and of course, reading different accounts about Marie. So it's like, okay, what can I say actually jives with the historical record? You know, what makes sense? You know, what just sounds, you know, just completely wacko. In latter parts of Marie's life, there were a couple of letters actually written by her um, that were published in the 1950s in a local newspaper, and I found a account that her son had written talking about the end of her days or something like that. So that's, so the letters I took seriously, I mean, you know, these were by people, by her or people who knew her. So that was good. That was, so that was a good reconciling selling point. But, and then, like I said, I just, what does your gut tell you, you know, based on your knowledge, your experience, your re prior research? Right, and the sense of learning to weight what are uh, sort of credible sources versus more speculative sources is um, something that has to be uh, learned and gained through a long time spent in the field. Very recently, our last guest was Bill Blyer, who had written a book about um, who has written a book about George Washington's spy ring, and in his particular case, uh, we had this interesting discussion about the fact that most of the evidence that gave rise to our understanding of the spy network and the American Revolution was never intended to have survived. I mean, the spies themselves were asking Washington and his uh, military cohorts to destroy these letters, right? And yet, for some reason, um, many of them did, in fact, uh, survive. They were not destroyed. And so that's how we know what we know today, whereas uh, you're dealing with a, a slightly different time period. Of course, you're working a century later, but there's also this sense of trying to figure out what is sound uh, material that you can base your conclusions on. And it, it struck me, Tom, you have such a clear narrative, which is full of uh, sort of acknowledgments about where we can't be sure about something. <laughs> um, and then... Yeah, I, I had to qualify a lot of comments. <laughs> yeah, of course. 
you know, and the way I do it is say, according to local legend or lore or, you know, tradition says, because a lot of times, not necessarily in this case, but like with Carnival, there's some, I found a lot of great stories about Sherman in South Carolina that I couldn't prove, but they were good. But the story was so good, I wanted to include it. Uh, it's like I tell people, you know, you always hear about how they'll say about George Washington. If George Washington slept everywhere he was said to have slept, he would never spend a night in uh, Mount Vernon. The same with Sherman in South Carolina. Sherman went everywhere he was supposed to have been. He would still be in South yeah. Carolina. <laughs> All those jokes about pieces of the true cross. If we had enough pieces of the true cross, we'd have a, you know enough to fill the redwood forest in Northern California 10 times over, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> right. But another factor, too, was consider the source. Uh, like I said, you know, you could tell by the way it was written in the tone of the writing that it was definitely intended, you know, for scandal, for shock. I mean, you know, like a National Enquirer article, you know, how the National Enquirer has that certain style of writing the tabloids, you know, they throw out, you know, something absolutely stunning and then go on to a little, all kinds of bizarre or scandalous stories and so forth. That kind of was a clue to the way things were written. Not so much what was written, but the way it was presented, in other words. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, in that sense, you know, your your context is always going to be your ally there. Now, I want to I want to ask you, um, as as Sherman uh, arrives and their lives sort of change dramatically after after that point, you know, they are um, it's almost sort of like Act One and Act Two, as we were saying. For Marie, yeah, for for Marie, if the first half of her life is fairly geographically confined the second half is almost the total opposite now i don't want to give away the incredibly dramatic incidents that um that uh lay in wait for her once she ended up traveling overseas uh i don't want to sort of uh spoil the whole story listeners should absolutely uh, go pick up a copy of your book and and find out the kind of crazy adventures that she went on. But you know what's funny is that she ended up living the kind of fanciful life that romance and mystery writers can kind of only dream of, couldn't she? It really was remarkable where she ended up. Well, I mean, her her second mar her second husband was a bona fide count. How more how more fairy tale can you get other than becoming a princess? <laughs> Fair. <laughs> there is one uh, yeah. that I will share with the listeners. One, I mean, because she was on the island of Java the day Krakatoa exploded, and I she actually wrote a letter telling about her experiences, which is in the book, which I won't share. Um, but I like to tell people that I'm the only Civil War author to ever put Krakatoa, which, by the way, contrary to the movie title, is not east of Java but west of Java, um, in a Civil War book. I think that's. I think that's. <laughs> a, I think you could, uh, Yeah, you can dine out on that one for a good number of years. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's pretty cool. It, it reminded me as I read it of you know that famous yeah. letter we have of uh, Pliny watching the eruption of Mount Vesuvius right outside of. Naples. And, you know, here, here we are. And her detail is actually quite good, isn't it, in that in that letter? And a little bit racist, too. Yes, there was that. Uh, quite right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, unfortunately. Now, it seems to me that as you were tabulating all of this, I mean, 
you know, you were collecting these sources and so forth. Some of the most entertaining work really did have to be piecing together the accounts, the many, many, many different versions of the end of Marie's days. Can you just give us like a little, a little teaser for that? Because there are some, there are some versions of the story which are just about as ludicrous as you know anyone could ever hope to imagine in this day and age. It really, I was well, very charmed. <laughs> I, I will. <laughs> well, I just want I will state first. Let me give an added bonus. Um, one of the persons that she was alleged to have hung out with, um, in her later life was a woman named Cora Pearl, who was the Madonna and Lady Gaga of her day. She was a very famous chorusin. Look that up in your Funkin' Wagnalls. Um, and she uh, would go to events with her carriage, her dress, and even her dog all dyed the exact same color. And she would, was often scantily attired, even by modern standards, for some of these events she went to. And she said by some, I did not learn this until after our book came out, that she is the inspiration, according to some, for Irene Adler, the woman in the Sherlock Holmes story, A Scandal in Bohemia. Ah, interesting. So she was the fun person. I had to look, look up some more about her and like went, whoa. Yeah, well, maybe there's, a, maybe there's room for another book. Good heavens, look at that. <laughs> she, Cora actually wrote, I think, two accounts of her life. Um, but my favorite story about how Marie met her end is supposedly she went to Africa and became the mistress of a Zulu war chief who caught her cheating and had her beheaded, shrunk her head, and wore it around his neck. <laughs> and who on earth, I mean, I know that half of your job is sort of like following these rabbit holes of, of the stories, you know, back down oh. as far as they can go. But who on earth came up with that one? I'm not really sure off the top of my head. I don't remember where I came up with that one. But to me, that the story about that story to me, you know, implies a little bit of bitterness because think about, it, you know, a white woman, you know, having an affair with a black man in the late 1800s was scandalous, you know, no matter what part of the country you lived in. And, and so it was kind of like, in a way, someone saying, you're no longer a white person, you're no longer a human being, you are dead to us, in a way. It's the way I kind of read the fact that someone would actually come up with that story to me. It was a very subvert form of racism, right? And you do you do acknowledge uh, in your in your discussion that, as you said, there are some agendas that are at work, and there are uh, individuals who may have access to grind, and they're sort of settling old scores and so forth. So, entirely possible, exactly, entirely possible. This falls under that particular uh, category. I, I guess I only have one sort of more question for you, Tom, about uh, this this pair of just fascinating women about whom we know, and I mean that in the sort of like very traditional sense, about whom, you know, the facts are so few, <laughs> you know, the legends are so large, um, you know, we know. And many. And many and numerous and sort of still proliferating in some cases, it seems like. Um, we know so little and yet we suspect so much. To my ear, to my mind, that sounds like the makings of a pretty good uh, intelligence officer or, or you know, intelligence agent. Um, but 
what I want to ask you is, <laughs> I really am, I really am, you know, uh, partial, partial to that, to that account. Uh, what I want to ask you, Tom, is, you know, as you were, as you were studying uh, their biographies and sort of really trying to formulate this comprehensive um, account, which was the first of its kind, do you think, do you think there is a lesson in either of their lives, uh, or do you think that they? They simply sort of tried to read the tea leaves of their own personal histories and and take advantage of whatever they could, whenever they could. Well, Amelia, basically, you could say she wound up, you know, sort of dying from her own sins. Um, she and Marie apparently had a major falling out. And Amelia died broke and was, I want to say, buried in a pauper's grave. Um. You know, I have to look on find a grave to see if I could find her grave and could not. So, that, so I mean, there is something there, you know, I mean, it's like a morality play in that sense. You know, someone tries to climb the ladder of success by hook and by crook and in the end has nothing to show for it. Um, you know, she was in, you know, Marie was in Europe at the time her mother died in America. So her mother died alone and penniless. So. You could say, you know, she sort of may have paid for her sins. Marie, as I said, to me, I've always looked at her as a little bit of a victim, more more than a victimizer. She wound up having something of a very relatively happy life. But as I put in the book, too, she was always, the scholars and gossip about her followed her everywhere. And apparently she it caused her to have some depression, which contributed to her end. Um, so. But to me, Marie's story is more about overcoming adversity and overbearing mother and trying to, and finding her own true happiness. At the same time as being caught up in these incredibly powerful currents of, of history, which um, you know, we almost never could have seen. She had no control. She probably never saw. Right. She, she had no control. She never saw coming. Exactly. Right. And who would have? Yeah. Who among us? So... Yeah, I so I so like I said, I, I really feel sympathy. I, I'm very sympathetic towards Marie. Her mother, not so much, but Marie, yeah, I actually do feel for her. It is a fascinating journey um, to follow along with them and to see them at the intersections of so many currents, and particularly their uh, their very isolated position. They were, you know, Union sympathizers in a deeply Confederate city, you know, working quite literally behind enemy lines, you know, to aid, you know, to aid their, right. their fellow countrymen. And um, it's a, it's a powerful story and we are very grateful for the chance to learn uh, more about it. The last question I have for you, Tom, is just where can people learn more about you and your work? I do have a page on, I do have a page on Amazon, Tom Elmore. Just look at um, all the three books from the History Press are featured on there. Um, also, Carvel is sometimes on there, and I've seen people put it for $4,000 on Amazon. I'm going like, what? <laughs> um, but um, the three books, as I call them, the three skinny books, um, can be ordered from the History Press slash Arcadia Publishing. Um, they're $20 each, and Carvel is available from the Joggling Board Press out of Somerville, South Carolina. Um, Joggling board is one word, and it's forty dollars, and you can or, you know, directly from them. Well, that sounds great. I'm sure that uh, many of our listeners will be taking you up on the offer. Thank you so much for joining us 
today and for shining a light on such an enigmatic and shadowy uh, portion of our nation's history. We really appreciate it. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. See you soon. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Tom Elmore, historian and author of The Scandalous Lives of Carolina Bell's Marie Boozer and Amelia Feaster, Flirting with the Enemy, published by the History Press. To order a copy of the book, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our new Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org shop crime capsule. Join us next week for an interview with Christian McBurney as we return to the theater of the Revolutionary War and to the spies of colonial-era Rhode Island. See you then. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.